0: say you can kill my body but you know you can't med with my mind welcome to economics and beyond i'm rob johnson president of the institute for new economic thinking say you can kill my body, <laughs> say you kill my body but you know you can't med with my mind so, no, you can't kill my mind you know we'll go away Come back, come back, come back, come back, my second time. I'm here again for part two with Dr. Erwin Laszlo. We today will focus on his new book, recently released, The Immutable Laws of the Akashic Field. Uh, Dr. Laszlo is an extraordinary individual, in my view, both a musician a philosopher and scientist, and someone who has recently been named in 2019 one of the top 100 people in the the realm of spirituality. I guess it was the 100 most spiritually influential living people in the world by Watkins' Mind, Body, Spirit magazine. He was also cited among the U.M. Magazine Top 100 World's Most Inspiring People. If I had been a voter on either of those panels, I would have clearly nominated or voted yes. And after yesterday, I would emphasize that uh, this is a gentleman who's been prolific in the time since the pandemic has begun and really, really uh, setting a beautiful example for us, which you might call, rising to the challenge that humankind faces. Dr. Leslie, thank you for joining me again. It's really, really a powerful book, The Immutable Laws of Akashic Field. It is sh- showing things. And you talk about, at the early part of the book, what, what I would say, the co- the three laws around which you see things, but share with our listeners and viewers what inspired you to write this book, particular book, and what is the essence of Akashic Field history and what you might call elements that you would like us to become aware of?
1: Well, how I got to this idea of the Akashic Field is a, it's a story of, actually, of intellectual development. Uh, I, If you think in terms of the great choices, the great options of embracing metaphysical or philosophical thinking about the world, you can think about Aristotelian and Platonic ways. And for most of my life I was Aristotelian. I believed in empirical thinking and just you just create hypotheses on the basis of what you can observe and, uh, and, and then verify by subjecting your predictions to empirical testing and so on. So this is a, a normal scientific method which I will call in that sense Aristotelian. Now the platonic is a little different. The platonic doesn't channel uh, everything, doesn't trace everything to the perceivable realm. To the empirical, to the experienceable, he talks about a deeper level, which Plato called the realm of the forms or ideas, where the soul is located. Something that transcends the 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 perceivable everyday world. Now, as I said, I started out being an Aristotelian, but uh, then as time went on, I began to see more and more how the world that we perceive, the observable world, even though we perceive it now with more and more of a refined instruments going deeper, further, and uh, find enormous, fantastic things about, about the nature of the universe is, still it all implies that there is something more than just what we can experience. I'm not saying what we experience, but what we can experience in what is possible to experience. So then I, I, I became aware, of course, of, of Plato's thinking of this deeper dimension, how everything that we perceive is really just a projection of the deeper dimension. You know, the famous allegory of the cave in Plato, where he talks about a cave, where prisoners are, are, are chained in such a way that they can't turn around there's a big fire, a light behind them, and there's a wall in front of them. Now, they make shadows on the wall of the fire. They can't turn around to see what that fire is, but that fire is behind them. And, and the, what you see on the wall are just the shadows, emanations in a way, of that other dimension which is behind us. So that's an allegory. There is the real light. Of, is behind us is not is in a way that we don't perceive it, but we can infer it from what we do perceive. And if we really go deep down, I think then we find that what we perceive doesn't make sense in itself, unless you assume that they are uh, projections, emanations, or reflections of something deeper, something which is more permanent deep down. Now, it happens that the more science probes this nature of reality, the more scientists who do not do not hesitate to move behind this Aristotelian frame, these scientists can affirm that there is something more. When quantum physics, already for the past 50 years at least, has been talking about a unified field in which all the phenomena that we perceive are particular vibrations or, or, or wave patterns, um, something that is taking place in that field, but is not, uh, is not is itself the field, but is the, it's the reflection of the field. So I realized that this is, makes a lot of sense, that we cannot deny. The existence of such a deeper dimension, and this seemed to be it seemed to me always both rationally and intuitively right. So I, I, when I looked further, I saw that there is indeed an idea that has been around for, you know, three, three and a half thousand years. In in the great classical metaphysics, which is traced to the thinking of the Hindu seers of India. We were speaking about a dimension which is the origin and the source of all the perceivable dimensions. The perceivable dimension, earth, air, water, fire, these are what we what we see in the world. What this deeper dimension is, is not something that we see, but which in a way reflects or gives rise to the to the perceivable world. Very beautiful work by the great yogi Vivekananda describes this. We call the akasha the, the akasha dimension. Describes this in great detail and relates the classical thinking also to, to to modern science. Actually, I did that relating more more according to quantum physics, and I came to the conclusion that if you take Vivekananda's insights. And you substitute the word, you know, akasha to quantum field, you get quantum science, <laughs> practically. Because they're talking about the same thing, just phrased differently. So I, I perceive, I believe that the deeper dimension exists. The deeper dimension is not something we perceive, is our sensory organs. But it is there, and it is the source of all things. David Bohm calls it the implicate order. Of which the explicate order is a manifestation. I begin to think in these terms and say that this deeper dimension has to be, can be called, of course, can be called the unified dimension, can be called the integral implicate order. We can give all the names that we we wish, but to give credence, to give credit to these ancient, mystical philosophers of India. And we can call, them, call this the Akasha dimension. And to bring it up to date, I talk about the Akashic field, because field is something for me is how the world is presented to us. It's presented sequentially, one thing after another. Because the real world, we assume, is a many-dimensional. Three dimensions, we seem to perceive, but there is a fourth dimension, according to relativity theory. uh, Quantum theorists talk about up to 23 dimensions. So certainly more than a single dimension. And this is how it's presented to us, all these dimensions, is in a continuous field, an unbroken, seamless field. And so this deep dimension is presented to us as an akasha, akasha, domain as an akashic field. So this is just to to answer your question. Uh, just to add one thing, when I started calling this in my writings, the this unified field, the grand unified field, as now the scientists were saying, if I started calling it the akashic field, the reaction was spontaneous and very very surprising. People said, "Aha, yes." We know about the Akashic field. I mean, most people heard about the Akashic records, for example, and they said, yes, this makes sense that the the grand unified field of quantum science is actually an Akashic field. So let it be. And I started working with this concept and people found it meaningful. So that's why it is. That's why then after having written a book, I believe in 2007 or, or, or so, the first time, uh, and, uh, no, 2004, the first edition uh, of Science and the Akashic Field. It, it, it really did well in, 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 the, in Amazon and elsewhere. And so people started ask, asking, uh, can I say something more about what I believe about the Akashic Field now? I proposed this to my publisher, says, yes, by all means, explain that. So I said, let's do it in terms of laws, in terms of what there is specific about this field, what it is that is, is not changeable, what, what is really fundamental about this field. Because the everyday field, the everyday world is constantly changing, but it must change according to some rules, otherwise it would be random change, haphazard. It couldn't make sense ahead or tail of that. But if there is a logic behind it, there are some laws that regulate the change. It's like playing chess. There are some laws of chess which are not changeable, but the games are. Every game is a different game. Every every player is a different player. But the laws are the same, the same way. We are all different. Our world that we perceive is changing all the time. But behind the change, we can perceive some regularities, some laws. And I tried in this little book to describe what I consider would be the most fundamental basic laws of what you can call the Akashic Field.
0: Perhaps uh, we could take a brief tour through the three laws in the first part of your book. Uh, Connectivity law, the law, the memory law, and the coherence law. Can you share with our listeners briefly what each of those represents?
1: These are short term. These are just labels that I think are useful to identify these laws. The connectivity law is really means that what you now see on the basis of experiments in the 1980s in quantum physics that at the fundamental level of reality things are so connected that what happens in one place is reflected in another place. It doesn't just affect the other place but it seems to happen also there. This famous bell inequality and the 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 poor experiment of non-locality in quantum physics it's not that one thing affects another what happens here is also happening there it's the same same event is taking place even though things are separate from one another, seemingly separate from one another it turns out that they are not they remain connected once they are connected they remain connected based on that more and more experiments were made to see how things truly are replicated over distance, how we can transcend distance, and also the more and more interestingly how we can transcend time because what happened some time ago, if you do it again, it's as if it will be happening now. So time doesn't have the same meaning as if a Newtonian universe, it's a sequence of events and Narda space. This is, these, these are the connectivities that come to light in contemporary science. They seem to occur at the micro level and for a long time people said it only concerns the micro level. Once you are on the macro level there are these so-called Brownian motions of, of molecules, which means that the, in, in the probability is canceling out and we deal with a standard Newtonian universe. Not quite true. More and more experiments now show that on the macro level, the level of, that we observe, as, as opposed to the micro level, which you don't observe, which is so small, the tiny a bit, the quanta, you know. On, on the ordinary macro level, also, things are connected in some surprising ways. Coincidences are not really coincidences, they, they are connections in some way. Sometimes they are e-causal, because they don't have explanation in terms of Newtonian laws, mechanistic laws, but they occur anyway. And they occur seemingly under in a deep dimension. They occur in this field. They manifest in, it, in, the, in the field of everyday experience, but they occur deep down. This might seem like splitting hairs, but think of it, how fundamental this idea is that the world is, that we observe, that we live in, is really a manifestation, an exhibition of something which is rooted deeper in the universe, which is deep, present in the universe, where everything, and then we can get to the next law after that almost, because then in this field, everything, it reminds what it is. Nothing vanishes in time. So connection, yes, that's what the first law. I believe the second law, as you've seen, is the law, of memory, of, of uh, remaining. So just to, to continue this thought and a few words, whatever happens in this universe, in space and time, may seem to disappear after a while, vanish, be cancelled as it were. But you can no more cancel an event from, this, from the Akashic field than you could cancel uh, 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 an input from your computer, if your computer is fixed, is turned on to to record what you're doing. It's all there. The the Akashic field is a memory field. We can now understand how memories can encompass a lot of events. I have been told that uh, holograms can, can store an incredible amount of information. One example, The claim is that a hologram the size of a cube of sugar, which is a multi-dimensional, multi-layered hologram, if that hologram could store as much information as to locate every letter in every word, in every volume in the Library of Congress. So it's almost mind-boggling level of information. And it's all that on 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 a size, on a hologram, the size of a cube of sugar. Now, imagine what the universe, as the whole system can store. It can store everything from the very beginning of space and time and the Big Bang. It's all there. It can all be played back. It all can be recalled because it's all conserved. This is a cosmic memory. Talk about the Akashic Records. It's not only a record of individuals, of human beings, and of what is happening to humans. It's a record of the universe, of the evolution of the universe. So I believe that is fairly well now established in science. It's unlikely that we should come across evidence contrary to it. All things are connected, and all things are are conserved. These are the two first two laws.
0: And then the coherence law. What does that? uh, How does that relate to the other two? and, And what else does it illuminate?
1: Well, the background to that is, just to reach back for a moment,
0: it used to be a dogma
1: almost, a doctrine, a central doctrine of science, that there is no higher guidance in the world in what happens, that scientists were afraid of bringing in teleology, bringing bringing in uh, some uh, godlike transcendent figure whose, whose will would prevail. Uh, who would say what is to happen and how, how things are to happen. So they were refusing this and so the dogma became that the universe, what we perceive of the universe, is the result of a series of chance interactions. A lot of things are happening by chance, they interact, and sooner or later the universe emerges. It's like the saying, if you allow a monkey to play on the on the, on the keys of a typewriter, given sufficient time, it will type out the sonnets of Shakespeare. I suppose it would take some while, but uh, in principle, statistically, the possibility, it is given that all permutations of possibilities occur, if not sooner than later, given enough time. Now, the universe has finite time to evolved to what it is today. According to the current understanding, which is now about 50, 60 years at least, if not more that the processes that we call evolution, that are ongoing in this universe, have not been there forever. They have started, and they will end also. They have started. Generally, it's generally believed at the at the singularity in the in the cosmos, which we call the Big Bang, 13.8 billion years ago. And they'll run until they either run down. In, in, in a vacuum in, in in space, or they get or they get compressed again in the so-called big crunch, where every, all all the all the all the matter-like particles in the whole universe get get compressed again to the size of a of a quantum size smaller than the of a pin of of a pin. So it's, this is a finite process. It has a beginning, has an end. And in the meantime, it, it proceeds in certain ways. And if it would proceed randomly, and everything would be just a matter of chance, it's very, very unlikely, statistically extremely unlikely, that it would create a coherent universe. There would be a lot of events, a lot of chaos, a lot of different fluctuations occurring. Maybe some patterns would emerge, but that this amazingly coherent universe where we can have laws describing what, what is happening, where we can make sense of events relating, one event relating to another, this universe would not have emerged. They say even the DNA of a, of a fruit fly would not have emerged by random mixing in the time of 13.8 billion years ago. The universe is very, very complex. Just to give another example. Fred Hoyle, a great mathematical physicist, gave an example about the Rubik cube. You know, the Rubik cube where you hold it is six-sided six based cube, where you can twist it with different colors. If you start in any random combination of the Rubik cube, and if you take one second for each move to unscramble it, to be sure that you've unscrambled it, then you must run through all the permutations. And if you take one second per possible permutation, the total time required would be longer than the age of the universe. So it's even a Rubic cube is, is complex. is a highly complex entity, allowing so many different permutations, different changes. And of course, even more so a living system, enormously complex also the, the stellar systems, the, the cosmic systems. So let's not underestimate it. It's not likely, in fact, astronomically improbable that it already would have a very spirandom mixing. There is something in the universe, a drive, a movement, an attractor, I call it, which is toward coherence. That means toward the organi- organizing of the chaos into rec- recognizable sequences. In a coherent system, every element is connected with every other. Every element responds to every other. And all the elements together create the system that emerges. A living system is created because all the elements in, in a healthy organism, all the elements work together to maintain that system. If some elements would fail to, to work together, it would become, become a disease. We have to recognize that there is a drive, there is a tropism, or to make it more acceptable to, to scientific mentality, and a tractor, which is built into this universe, which was there already at the, at the Big Bang, because all indications, as far as we can reconstruct it, show that the laws of nature were not created in the Big Bang. They, they are governing the processes that have unfolded since big Bang, but they were probably there in potential. What are these laws, these immutable laws? They are really what is given to the universe, given by whom, given by one, by what, a transcendental entity, a transcendental force, but something certain that is beyond this universe, is beyond the explicate order, is beyond the observable world, but not necessarily beyond the world itself because this world has a deeper dimension and the laws, these immutable laws, could be given in the akasha dimension. So that's why I say, yes, the the drive toward coherence, the tropism for creating integral systems of multiple diverse parts that are integrated in such a way that they maintain the system against all laws of probability, because physical systems tend to run down, you know, as the famous laws of entropy, run down to chaos, but nevertheless the universe itself doesn't seem to run down, nor does the sphere of life run down. Elements are parts of it do, but on the whole it doesn't. So it seems to me that there is a very deep-seated basic law operating in the universe, which is a tropism towards coherence, uh, towards holiness. So I call it the holotropic law, the holotropic principle.
0: I remember as I first read this book, I received like a, like a shudder, when I read something that you said, uh, th- we obs- things we observe in a sea are in a sea of potentiality that are fished out from this sea by our observation. Our observation actualizes them." That made me shudder because there, I recently read a book by a poet called InQ." which stands short for in question and he said people will find evidence to support what they want to believe and the notion that they want to believe something and they hunt for what you might call a subset of what is out there and and then quote capture that as an observation it's almost like the what you might call the premise of science is in reverse, that, uh, and you're asking us to open to a much broader, which you might call sensitivity and awareness, and perhaps perceive many things that we find to be uncomfortable. When, when I uh, went through the, the book, there were parts on hallucinogenic experience, meditation, and others as ways of getting to this deeper and better place. But I also was struck by your uh, reference Mm -hmm. to a values researcher named Karen Miller. And I'll just briefly, Mm -hmm. there were 10, I believe, uh, values that you cited, unity, community, life, freedom, connection, sustainability, creativity, empowerment, choice, and integrity. And how we bring those values to the surface and become our most curious, humble, sensitive, enlightened self, combining spirituality and science seems to be of greater service to humankind as a potential than the traditional way when, as you, I said, I think you said earlier in the book, when we view everything as material or it doesn't exist, we're missing a whole lot of the signals that are being sent to us. But let, let's talk how these 10 values and how this framework that the Akashic field and its immutable laws can help us turn the corner and overcome the obstacles that keep our scientific community from a higher awareness and perhaps threaten our existence on Earth?
1: You know, thank you for this very, very basic question. I can, in a way, distill down these ten values, the single value which is which is encouraged, which is prompted or inferred from this idea of universe that evolves towards coherence and this first single value would be to value integrality within diversity if you think integral and this is refers to what emerges in the field what emerges are integral and diverse fields the diverse in entities systems think of the human body think of any living body Think of the solar system, think of the galaxies, whatever level you take, things are not all the same. If they were, they would not be systems, they would be heaps. They would not have a capacity capacity to survive this constant turmoil, uh, which goes on in this this deep uh, unified field. What survives, what exists is a coherent set of fluctuations to go down to really to plastics. But in the human world, what appears to us, what survives is living entities, entire ecologies, and then ultimately the whole web of life. This is, these are systems, whole systems, each one of them in its own way. At the same time, they're also parts because they're parts in larger systems. The largest relevant system is the web of life on the planet immediately relevant. The larger system altogether would be the universe as a whole, obviously. But within that, what counts for us is is life with a capital L on this planet. And that system has a great deal of diversity. We are destroying unfortunately much of its diversity. And and it has a great deal of unity. We also destroyed much of its unity because it can only exist if every part complements every other part. Yes, there is competition. Yes, there is seemingly violence as well, but if nothing is arbitrary. Nothing is just just without a further reason. Everything contributes to the maintaining of the overall system. We try to maintain it as smoothly and as freely of violence and arbitrary acts as possible. But the whole system is maintained By finding how one thing fits to another, not just passively like a jigsaw puzzle, but how it fits to it as a dynamic entity, as a as a sophisticated engine that takes us someplace. Every part has to work perfectly, as as a a, 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 a satellite, a a robot, a a rocket, or a rocket engine that takes us up to space everything has to work perfectly to get it exactly into the right orbit Every, the whole universe is flying towards some higher levels of coherence moving in that direction whatever contributes to it is a value whatever halts it detracts from it makes an obstacle is a disvalue this is a very simple rule of thumb is what you are talking about is what you are thinking what you are behaving what you're acting like is that compatible with the evolution is it, first of all the persistence and then the thriving and the further evolution of the web of life on the planet seems a rather far-fetched question because we see the but we see the consequences if we don't take it into account how this planetary ecology can create conditions that are, could be threatening and are threatening to human existence on the world we need a coherent overall system and it's not enough just to fix up one part to work for us if the other parts don't come along so we need to return to thinking in holistic terms in whole terms of whole systems and the value is ultimately the value of coherence in a diverse system Mm -hmm. i think i would sum that up after many many other explanations and and and, and, uh, uh, experiences and explorations i would sum it up like that The, the single most fundamental value is to find coherence integrality integrity within a whole system not making it uniform not making it flat, not making it necessarily more powerful, but making it well organized, well functioning. The latest Darwinian principle that he himself maintained, although his followers have always forgotten this. He said, not only that, peace what survives is the fittest. He says, what survives is the most cooperative. And today the new biologist tells us that that is the case. I suppose a new psychology also comes to this insight: we are healthy in mind, in body, and in mind when we are one with the world around us. When we cooperate, when we when we are part of a movement towards higher levels of coherence and integration in this world. This is you can feel this if you're open to this. You can feel that you can be like that. You can also feel when you're when you're being a, being an obstacle to it. So, I think this, the new ethics is a naturalistic ethic, is a system like ethic, the holistic ethic, it takes the whole system as the point of reference. That's the criterion. The health of the body is the criterion for the health of every organ and every cell in the body. The health of the web of life is the criterion for every human being and every human organization on this planet. That makes sense to me. And I think the reason that, that you have all these problems in large part actually, uh, because we have forgotten this and we are only looking at how we can optimize the working of a, of a part is taking it into account what this does to the rest of the system.
0: Hmm. Well, sir, I uh, am sitting here recalling reading your Biography, autobiography of, as it, where you started as a musician and I feel like I'm listening both to a composer and a conductor at the same time. The energy that my young scholars and our audience can experience at a time when, as you say in the book, it's not a time of health or ease, it's a time perhaps of dis-ease and You, as an example, are rising to the challenge with an unrelenting energy. The number of books that you've released in the last two years is a call to action to all of us to join you. Your courage in helping us evolve beyond structures, vested interests and conditions, which are no longer suitable, is an example for every young scholar in this world striking out to do what I believe you do, which is work from your mind and your heart for the global common good. Thank you for joining me today and thank you for the work that you do.
1: Thank you for these much, much appreciated words. It's a pleasure to talk with you about these things. It's very important that we discuss them, and whether you like my example or not, everybody can decide it. Okay. But the fact is that we do have to recognize that we have a common aim to survive together, to flourish together, and that that is the utmost objective that we can pursue in the time of transformation and crisis. We have an opportunity for this, we're doing this, let's use this opportunity.
0: And I look forward, as I mentioned at the outset, to how you will integrate in your forthcoming book on the wisdom principles. And that book, I believe in the United States, will be released in September. And you can be sure I'll call you back to make another session and add that dimension into the conversations we've had here this week. Thank you again, and I look forward to to following your work following your example, and speaking with you again. Thank you. And check out more from the Institute for New Economic Thinking at ineteconomics.org. And I'll tell it and
1: speak it and think it and breathe it. And reflect from the mountains so all souls can see it. And I'll stand on the ocean until I start sinking. And I'll know my song well before I start singing